Ramos, we have one of those topics today that I'm really excited to discuss with you because we have not discussed it in depth previously, and that's heaven and interdimensional theology. Now, I assume some of our listeners, be patient for a second, maybe you are like me and have yet to discuss this with anyone in depth. I assure you, you've come to the right place. And so, Ramos, I'm just going to kick it over to you right out of the gate, come out hot. What on earth are we talking about when it comes to heaven and interdimensional theology? Well, I don't think heaven's that difficult to figure out. We're talking about. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> We're talking Fair about enough. the doctor heaven. So yeah, interdimensional yeah. theology is uh, is maybe the, the the part where people are going to kind of scratch your heads and try to figure out what on earth I'm talking about. But right, uh, you know, I use that terminology um, as a consequence of what biblical theology and covenant theology is talking about as what is potential for man in the garden and what is realized through Jesus Christ. Um, it's as simple as man's access to heaven, but it's also uh, instances throughout the history of redemption in which God reveals himself, if you would, by peeling back the veil momentarily, often in visionary form, sometimes in a theophany, where mankind, maybe a prophet, a people, an episode, a group of people, are given a glimpse into the heavenly dimension. And in that instance, we are seeing throughout redemptive history at different punctiliar events, this interdimensional access and scripture is replete with these episodes um, that you can just, you, you know, you think about uh, Jacob's ladder, you think about Moses in the burning bush, you think about uh, the theophanies at the Red Sea crossing. Uh, so many different instances. You think about Elijah being carried off in a chariot into heaven. Okay, all of these sort of uh, transactions between heaven and earth. Um, and, uh, and so we'll have to talk about some of those specific texts and develop that, um, uh, you know, as we go along here, but that's basically what we mean there. And then we'll also develop what has kind of taken root. I was we were talking about this before the show, we were talking about portal theology as well, that, that what you see in the garden of Eden, uh, is really that, um, in Eden, the Garden of Eden, and specifically as you look at the Tree of Life, the Tree of Life becomes something of a symbolic or typological portal through which mankind may pass. And as they do so, they, are, they will be instantly translated into a higher form of life, into a higher world, into a higher realm. And so, um, so many passages that we can think about. Obviously, Jesus, after his uh, work on the cross, obviously not only resurrected, but then also what? Ascended. And according to the book of Hebrews, he did what? He passed through the heavens. And he gives uh, the, early, he gives the disciples this interdimensional sort of, uh, uh, sight as he is literally being taken up in the clouds, what I like to call the glory clouds, the theophanic clouds, you know, that Klein talked about, but that in that theophanic cloud formation, Jesus is being teleported out of this. I don't know if that's the greatest word, but he's translated. Some commentators and theologians use that word that he is literally translated out of this realm dimension and into a higher realm, higher dimension that we know as the highest heavens. And so something like that is what we want to, uh, what we want to talk about when we're speaking of interdimensional theology. So this is going to be one of those fascinating conversations that no doubt one question will beget 10 other questions. So before we go too deep into that, can we just establish some foundation and tell me why it's important to focus on the doctrine of heaven? To begin, and I know that's a basic question, but I think it really sets the stage for what we're talking about today. 
It's so important. It's so pertinent. It's one of my biggest concerns right now in evangelicalism and in, uh, in the church, because I firmly believe, Ryan, that um, the importance of heaven has been somewhat diminished, that a lot of theologies are kind of popping up where it's become such a this worldly understanding of Christianity. Um, you think of the social justice movement, right? It's all about improving the conditions of life down here. You think of the reconstructionist movement. It's all about attempting to realize some sort of uh, semi-eschatological kind of phenomenon where this world kind of becomes more uh, repristinated, right? Where we look at, uh, at, 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 at the potential for the life that is transpiring in human history to somehow escalate down here by some sort of social, economical, or even uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, spiritual or revivalistic uh, sort of way where life down here, the conditions of this cursed world are the proposal by some of these people is that the conditions can change, they can improve. Uh, matter of fact, when you think about uh, theonomy and what's going on in that school of thought right now, I mean, for a lot of people, they've not read theonomy and Christian ethics, but I mean, Greg Bonson has a whole section where he talks about heavenly blessings being realized down here on this earth via the obedience to the law of God and the application of the law of God to civil governments. I mean, that's just one expression of how we we, we tend to want heaven uh, and, and we want aspects that belong properly to heaven. We want to kind of sort of realize them now in a premature eschaton. And that is absolutely out of place, uh, in my opinion, for the Christian life. Any sort of, uh, any sort of, uh, you know, covenantal blessings or things like that. I mean, we have to, if we don't understand those via union with Christ strictly at the redemptive level, we begin to adopt hyper eschatological conceptions that are uh, just foreign to the teaching of scripture. And, uh, and so what I would like to do is just to kind of set forth the importance of being heavenly minded. Um, I've talked to this, I've talked about this so often at church and with different, you know, people in different conversations. Uh, but if you look at what scripture does repeatedly, I mean, just everywhere, I mean, there's just dozens of scriptures, right? Where we are directed in a heavenly minded fashion, where Jesus is telling us not to store treasure here on earth, but in heaven, where Colossians three is telling us, don't put your mind on things on earth, but on the things above. Ta'ano, not taste gaze, right? Not epitaste gaze, not the things on this earth, but ta'ano, things above where Christ is. And so um, whether it's the book of Hebrews, whether it's the pilgrim theology of first Peter, second Peter, where you're thinking about your heavenly citizenship in Philippians. I mean, it's just all over scripture. And I think that if, if we lose a robust and healthy uh, doctrine of heaven, that is that fails, that fails to be integrated in all of our theology and our worldview, we really will cheapen we, we, we really will, will cheapen what Christianity really is. And, uh, and I think we sort of will bring that heavenly ideal down and, and, and in bringing it down, we're actually, uh, we're actually cheapening it in the process. It sure does. All of this heavenly talk sure does put a perspective on the statement, the nonsensical statement, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, which we've both talked about is just pure heretical. You should never say that. In fact, the only way you are going to be any earthly good to your neighbor, wife, husband, friends, family is if you're heavenly minded. If you're not heavenly minded, you're right. You are no earthly good. And that's, that's the real way to, to understand that. So is it a fair question? Another basic one to ask, what is heaven? Do we think about it as a realm, a place, a time dimension? Well, f fascinating question, right? I think for a lot of evangelicals, heaven is so theoretical that it becomes ethereal, right? We kind of have this vision of heaven that heaven is sort of this, um, you know, what the world says, right? It's comprised of, you know, 
angels floating around on clouds and cupids and you know things like that where you know what we are heading for in the future of our own lives of our own spiritual existence and life in heaven is some is some kind of uh some kind of ethereal existence where, you know, it's, it's almost like we're in a coma state or something like that, but we're really not, you know, heaven is just as historical, just as literal, just as physical as this heavens and earth down here. Um, and so we have to remember that, that heaven is a physical historical dimension. And, and really, uh, you know, Ryan, where I would direct people to here at this very critical juncture is to understand what Genesis 1-1 is saying, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, we are being given a, 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 a sort of a summary of God creating both the upper register heaven, the, the heaven that is invisible, the heaven that is presently veiled, the realm of angels where the theophanic glory of God is expressed in a ubiquitous fashion. Um, theophanic glory just basically meaning that there is some sort of visibility to the glory of God in heaven that will permeate all of the realm of heaven that's presently veiled to our eyes and that and that, um, and that as, uh, Genesis goes on, then that, that heavenly, the creation of heaven itself becomes, if you would, archetypal, meaning it becomes the original. It becomes the, pa- the pattern after which, uh, earth is created. And maybe a supporting passage for that would be something like Nehemiah 9. Right. Where in Nehemiah chapter nine, verse six, I think it is right. We're being told that the angels are glo- are joyous observers as God is fashioning the world of the lower register. See, um, the upper register, lower register. Th- these are terms that were coined by Meredith Klein. And he is just trying to establish that what we're seeing in the Bible is in, in the creation week, what we're witnessing in the creation week is a projection of the heavenly realm down here. And that everything that goes on in the heavenly, on the, on the earthly plane, the visible heavens and earth actually has a heavenly correspondence to it. And therefore, uh, you know, it becomes this typological pattern where you have a heavenly archetype and an earthly ectype. And that becomes supremely uh, important. And so uh, I, I think if we think about, of, of heaven that way, we understand that everything in this uh, uh, lower register and this historical time dimension that we're in here is moving inexorably towards the consummation of this world, but also towards the commencement of the world to come that is itself a literal, historical, and physical place, dimension, realm. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. This affects your doctrine of God. Like you mentioned earlier, uh, this, you know, this opens up 10 questions, you know, additional questions to what we're talking about, because this affects your doctrine of God to understand that the highest heavens, the invisible realm, the realm of angels is not eternal. Uh, that it too had a starting point just like the visible heavens and earth. That the only thing that is truly eternal is God himself. And that there is, um, you know, the, a lot of, uh, like Cornelius Van Til would walk into class and every single class would start the same way. He would draw two circles, big circle representing God, little circle representing everything else. And in that little circle is heaven and earth, the highest heaven and the heavens and earth down here. And so we have to remember that, that, that the heavenly realm is, is also, is not God's environment. It is not the environment in which God dwells as if God is sort of side by side in a correlative fashion to some environment beyond himself that he is subject to. No, that's actually mutualism. That is idolatry. Uh, so we believe that in the beginning was what? God. 
and nothing else. And so, um, the, those kind of doctrine of God issues become very important as well. What you just said, I think is so important on a very basic level. You said that heaven and correct me, interrupt me, please. If I'm misinterpreting heaven is not in for lack of better terms, God's home or God's dwelling place, right? You're saying he exists outside of heaven. It's not one in the same with him. Is that accurate to say? Yeah. Uh, heaven is a created realm right in which in which the glory of god has chosen to dwell in some sort of visible theophanic form and of course the essence of god will always be invisible god is spirit right the absolute uh, uh simple essence of god the divine essence of god will always be trans uh, transcendent will always be altogether other, will always be beyond us. We, man will never, uh, will never come into direct contact with the essence of God. God will always remain God and we will always be the creature. And so we always have to maintain the creator creature distinction so that in the creator creature relation, now this is something you got to listen to very closely now. God does not lose himself in giving himself. God always remains the transcendent God of scripture. And so um, heaven is where uh, the presence of God is most concentrated. Heaven is the place in which God reveals his glory in a, a, to a degree and in a way that in this dimension down here, we simply don't have access to so that at every point in time where you see God revealed in the, in the history of redemption, how does he reveal himself? He reveals himself in some sort of theophany, in a burning bush, in a pillar of fire, right? In the smoke, in the temple, those kinds of things, in the glory cloud. Uh, but there is no direct revelation of the glory of God. But in heaven, we have the, the highest, a higher expression of that glory more immediately. So that's really important to remember. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that explanation. At the beginning of the call, we mentioned interdimensional theology, and I want to transition there because I know this is going to be a heavy topic. So just to refresh us, even from the past 20 minutes as the call started, can you briefly recap what interdimensional theology is and where is this supported in scripture? Well, like I said, I mean, I think it begins at the Garden of Eden. And, you know, it begins by knowing um, that the Garden of Eden is itself a temple dwelling. That the Garden of Eden is itself a, a place of communion with God. But it's also the scene for the potential for man's eschatological advancement. And of course, Eden is setting in front of Adam the potential for a higher life, a higher realm, to realize that there is a paradise above the paradise, uh, which is just fascinating, right? Because I think for a lot of Christians, we mentioned this in a previous podcast, right? There was that contemporary Christian song. Oh, I want to be in Eden. I want to be naked and unashamed. I want to go back to paradise. But the, that's not proper. That's not a proper Christian worldview. We don't want to go back to paradise. We want to go future. We want to go forward to paradise. We don't want the paradise of old. We want the paradise above. And so what that tells us is that Eden always was meant to be sort of a, a temporal realm, a place of testing, uh, to use maybe some covenant theology language, a place of probation, and that the, both the Sabbath and the tree of life were indicative, were symbols, were something of eschatological icons, if you would, right? That were indicating that something beyond Eden was available for man. And of course, it is eternal life, not in the Eden temple, but in the heaven temple. And so the tree of life, therefore, takes on a sort of portal uh, role, uh, the role of a portal into a, a higher dimension. Um, the tree uh, speaks 
of man's eschatological ascent, uh, his advancement and obtaining eternal life, not in this world, but in a world beyond Eden, beyond heaven and earth here, and to that which heaven and earth was patterned after. And that shouldn't surprise us because even if we go on in the history of redemption, right, we see that God is patterning things after the heavenly reality. That's exactly what Moses is told when he constructs a tabernacle, that Moses is taken up to the mountain and there, confirmed by the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter uh, 8, right? There, Moses is shown to construct the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. And of course, that pattern corresponds to the heavenly reality, which is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, and so the book of Revelation is absolutely key. We ask a scripture for, for, to constitute this interdimensional theology, this portal theology. When we go to the book of Revelation, we understand that eschatology and the beginning of the Bible, protology, they go together, right? And that the tree of life, the paradise of God, the theme of overcoming the idea of a temple dwelling, right? All of those ideas, the river of life, the precious stones, those things all have a correspondence that goes between the dimensions from the highest heavens to the earth below. And and then we begin to recognize, oh, that's why, you know, it's interesting, right? Because you read the book of Genesis chapter one and two, Limited revelation. I mean, God does not give us a massive tome on, <laughs> you know, cosmology. <laughs> you know, He doesn't explain to us every molecule and every atom and every, he doesn't tell us how he did it all and how, you know, he created all these species and kinds of things, right? It's a, it's quite a summary. And you kind of wonder, why does he spend so much time describing the precious stones, the onyx, the gold, the bouillon, you know, all of these things, right? Why does he spend time on those themes instead of maybe you and I would have had a million different questions. Why didn't God go into de- detail as to how he created the stars? <laughs> I mean, this is a vast universe. Why don't we get details on how he made the rings of Jupiter? But of course, of course, we are being given details that correspond uh, spiritually and eschatologically to the heaven temple. And guess what? All of that reemerges in Revelation 21 and 22, which I mean, I think is just fascinating. Um, Maybe just in terms of a scripture uh, uh, support for this, um, uh, Ryan, and you can... If you want more clarification on this, that's fine. You think it will be helpful. But, you know, my mind goes to the Tower of Babel, right? Where the Tower of Babel is shown to be the anti-Eden, is shown to be the anti-portal, the pseudo-portal. It's, it's the pseudo-interdimensional theology. It is what amounts to an antichrist situation an antichrist crisis because a false eschatological program is being set forth to mankind. And, um, you know, so that it's like what they're trying to do at the Tower of Babel is not realize eschatological glory through the promises of God that are found in the Redeemer, right? Instead, they're trying to realize eschatological glory, as it were, interdimensional <laughs> translation uh, through the work of their own hands, through self-deification by some sort of pagan and pseudo-religion. And of course, the Tower of Babel, um, that is actually itself a reenactment of the garden situation where in the garden, there you have the anti-lord, the form of a serpent, right? And the original pre-fall order setting before man an alternative way to advance, an alternative way to ascend 
to a status beyond their own, beyond being mere uh, creatures of the dust. Instead, they will ascend to what? A, some kind of godlike celestial status beyond what they have in Eden. So evil and so crafty. Uh, but that's what you're seeing in Babel is you're seeing the reenactment, typological reenactment. But guess what, Ryan? I know you because you know biblical theology and you probably know where I'm going. <laughs> but it's not just a reenactment. It's also a pre-enactment. And that pre-enactment, I believe, is to the ultimate Babel. It is to the final Babel system, Babylon system, that you find in Revelation 17 and 18, where there again, man has one purpose, seeking to unite, seeking to advance humanity by coming together for some alternative, uh, some alternative spiritual cause, uh, not rooted and grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ, resulting in eternal life than being united in a satanically fueled humanism. And uh, it's just amazing. But that's, that's some of the biblical support for this kind of theology. What I love about what you just said in, in Genesis 3, and you said what I was thinking on my mind of the Tower of Babel pointing back to the primal preaching of the Tower of Babel in the garden. It's interesting you have the kingdom and kind of the anti-kingdom both being preached in the garden. The seed who would crush the head of the serpent, which progresses all the way to the kingdom of Christ. Then you've got kind of that anti-kingdom or, 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 you know, what you just said being preached by Satan in the garden as well, which you see manifested through the Babel and, and so on. So you see the two, the split of, of sorts, right? Uh, in very primal form. And that is just fascinating to think about because it continues all throughout scripture as the redemptive historical hermeneutic plays out and we see God's story unfold. Th that is marvelous, man. That is absolutely stunning. Yeah, it's two eschatological programs. There are two eschatological right. programs. And, yeah. and, and if, people, if people want to understand how far-reaching this is, right, um, mm -hmm. I have, I've repeatedly said, and we talked about this in our episode on transhumanism, um, it, it, the future of apologetics is eschatology. Why? Well, because um, the true enemy, the true antichrist crisis has always been setting before man an alternative eschatological uh, portal, interdimensional translation, uh, advancement, right? And, 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 and the more we recognize that that is in an antichrist nature of that, the, the better we understand what it is that fallen man, blinded by the God of this age, what it is that they're being uh, proffered, what it is that they're being given, what they're being tempted with. That's what we're seeing now, you know, with the, the world becoming more integrated. I mean, I just read a, I just read a, a detailed article on digital ID and digital ID programs and networks that are springing up all over the world right now, India, China, I mean, just everywhere where the UN, the UN just recently uh, announced that they are uh, optimistic about their digital ID program and what they have, you know. And uh, I think that what we're seeing in, 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 this, in this world right now where we're living, we're seeing another Babylite movement I would say the ultimate Babylite. So it's, you know, it translates into real life. It, it, it really exposes the humanistic, demonic, anti-Christian, anti-Christ, satanic, uh, sort of idolatrous nature of the world system. And so, um, it, it really has cash value in the real world. This is not just abstract theology. Man, so much to digest. I want to go back to the garden for a minute. When we talk about Adam in a probationary state in the Garden of Eden, what a place to be in probation, by the way, just to note. Had he, tell me if I'm going off track here, had Adam not taken of the fruit, but rather overcome the temptation of the serpent, then would go 
in this order to the tree of life, be able to take of the tree of life, and then his progression into heaven. Is that effectively how covenant theology finds its way into this discussion? Is that an accurate order and representation of what would have played out? Yeah, I think you're at, you're right on the money. Uh, I wish that covenant theologians of all different stripes would keep to the basic structure that you just laid out, um, because that is orthodox covenant theology. I would say maybe the only thing I would add to that is that not only upon his successful probation would Adam advance through the tree of life, but 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 the implication seems to be that Adam would also therefore be the the federal head of a humanity. And so at some point, right, the commandment also to be fruitful and multiply so that we don't know upon at at what point historically Adam would have been granted this access to the tree of life or how long his probation would have endured. But it seemingly it would have happened uh, after posterity would have been born to Adam so that he could advance not only himself, but all of those that descend from him through natural generation. And that's what you see, for example, in the second Adam. So in Christ, right, it's not just about Christ advancing, but what does the book of Hebrews say? He advances as our forerunner. He advances as the head of a new humanity. And so, um, but yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, pending that perfect, exact, entire, uh, you know, personal obedience to the law of God, uh, within the confines of the covenant of works, um, uh, then Adam would have uh, the legal uh, covenantal right to the tree of life. And think of the honor of that. Think of the beauty of that. Think of the privilege of Adam having passed probation and how glorious it would have been for him to see himself confirmed in righteousness Take the fruit of the tree of life and with absolute righteousness and absolute authority to then eat of that reward. <laughs> it's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And to, and to know that what was in that primal picture of the Garden of Eden and how that then relates to the greater Adam, the second and last Adam, Christ, right? And all the honor invested in him upon his successful work. It's nothing less than what Jesus said in John 17, the father, that he would return to the glory. And that is always what's at stake. It is the doxa. It is the glory dimension. It is the glory realm. It is the status of glory. And Jesus um, expressing his desire to go back to that, to that glory that he had in that pre-incarnate uh, state or mode of life. But this time, as the Son of Man, in a glorified body, uh, it's just remarkable. Now, to go one step further, had Adam done that and was and ascended to heaven, would we then have been born, you and I, in heaven? And does that mean we'd still worship Jesus the Son, n- knowing that we wouldn't have a Savior? Uh, how do we think about that? <laughs> That's interesting, right? Because this gets into your lapsarian views of the decrees of God. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I personally believe that, uh, obviously, though Adam had the potential by nature to do exactly what was required of him in the garden. I don't think he had the potential by the decree of God, because I think the eternal decree of God was always to eschatologically advance the world through his son, Jesus. So in one sense, these questions are interesting, but I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of those questions. I mean, my personal position, I guess, for a question like that would be that, that no, I I don't think that we would that we would have been born in heaven. I think that however, however much posterity would have been born to Adam through general uh, uh, natural generation here on earth, that would be the only posterity to be 
glorified in heaven. And so um, I think something like what Jesus says about the state of heaven, the state of heaven is that we are like the angels. There is no marriage. There is no childbearing in heaven. And so I don't think that we would be, you know, giving birth to celestial, you know, babies or something, you know, for all eternity. So no, it seems as if uh, whatever posterity would have been born to Adam and Eve at that time would be the only posterity to advance into glory. So Okay. Thank you. One more question on Eden, and then we'll con- we'll continue along here. How do we think of Eden in connection with the rest of the world before the fall? Do we picture it as an exclusive garden, or is the whole world effectively Eden? Can you just unpack that a little bit there? Uh, yeah. You know, um, what's interesting is that... Um, uh, Meredith Klein, or, um, Meredith Klein certainly, but also G.K. Beale has done the, uh, the, really the typology that you find in the temple and the tabernacle, uh, that, that really the features of the Garden of Eden are represented in the, uh, in the holy place and in the holy of holies. So that it almost seems as if the world was God's cosmic temple and that Eden was the place of concentrated communion with God. Um, uh, sort of reminiscent of the holy place, right? And that uh, Adam uh, had communion with God. So if you take a passage like, oh boy, uh, Ezekiel 28, and if you take the Adamic position, which I do, that what Ezekiel is conveying there is the fall of Adam instead of the fall of Satan, then it seems as if Adam uh, regularly ascended uh, the hill of the Lord, as it were, that 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 that, that, that the Eden was in a mountain uh, situation, and that it seems as if Adam would ascend up the mountain to commune with God. It speaks of the stones of fire, which are reminiscent of the precious stones there in Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapter two, um, but that uh, Eden, therefore, is the place of concentrated. Uh, sanctuary communion with God, whereas the entire world, the entire cosmic order is also construed as the temple of God. And there's, oh, there's so many passages on that, you know, um, heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. You know, there are so many passages in the Psalms that speak of the heaven and earth, meaning the visible heaven and earth as the temple of God, the sanctuary of God, but that Eden is sort of a concentrated expression of that very thing. So it's sort of multi-layer typology of the temple theme. Um, and so something like that, I think is important to, to take that into account as we're trying to account for how Eden is described in a temple fashion. And yet the whole world is described as a temple fashion in a temple fashion. So I think that's important too. So we're covering some deep topics as we walk through this. What, what is the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose more specifically of interdimensional theology? Oh, that is so good. Um, that question right there uh, is very important when you think about redemptive history. And this is one of the things, Ryan, that actually led me to um, to think about things along the lines of an interdimensional theology, that at pivotal stages in the history of God's people, God grants them a heavenly, um, a heavenly vision and interdimensional theophany right? You think about a critical, critical time like the Exodus so that God reveals himself to his people. How? By bringing Moses up the mountain. And as Moses is brought up the mountain together with the elders, you see that, for example, in Exodus, um, oh, where's that passage? I think it's Exodus 24, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Exodus chapter 24, especially verses 9 through 11, where there Moses is given access to go ascend the hill of the Lord to commune with God. And what does he see atop the mountain? He is given an interdimensional revelation. He sees a glorious sapphire pavement that he describes being as clear as crystal. And, 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 and what he's literally seeing is he's seeing 
uh, he's seeing the feet of God resting on the pavement. So it's almost as if what Moses is seeing is he's seeing up into the sky where the heavens, the visible heavens that re- that are reminiscent of the clarity, the clarity of the sky, the, clar- the clarity of heaven itself become the footstool of God. Almost as if Moses is looking up to the sky and he sees the soles of God's feet. And he is reminded that heaven is a place where God sits enthroned. And, and, and the, the, the corresponding passage to this, Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 through 11, the corresponding passage to that is going to be Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Where in, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given the same exact, virtually the same exact vision of the sapphire pavement, clear as crystal, clear, gleaming like the sky, gleaming like the, uh, gleaming like the, uh, um, the, the clarity of, of heaven. And Ezekiel is seeing it from the heavenly realm, from on top where he sees the, the, the heavenly creatures and, uh, you know, he sees the angels and he sees God's throne from above. And Moses is seeing God's throne from below. But at the same time, what is God telling Moses and Ezekiel? What he is telling them is that at every stage of redemption, God is on his throne. And the same vision occurs in Zechariah 6. The same vision occurs, maybe the most important passage, the same vision occurs in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is given a more detailed, mature account of all of these things as he sees what? He sees the Lord high and lifted up, sitting, what? In the temple, the, the train of his robe fills the temple and the smoke fills the temple, right? And he sees the glory of God and he says the altar of God and he understands something of God's redemptive purpose uh, as the coal is taken from the altar to touch and cleanse his lips. Uh, it's, it's really an amazing, uh, amazing phenomenon. I know that this is something that, I mean, these passages and these instances, these heavenly visions just go on and on and on in, in scripture, whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. I mean, you have something of an inner, interdimensional phenomenon going on in the mountain of transfiguration. I mean, the disciples are again taken onto a mountain and there something like an interdimensional access is revealed, right? Where the voice of God comes out of heaven, appearing in the theophanic clouds there in, uh, where's that at? Uh, Matthew chapter 17, uh, those kinds of things. And so in every single one of those instances, again, it is God revealing his redemptive purpose to his people, moving us along to remind us that we are heading towards the consummate kingdom of God. Wow. That is, there's so much to think about right there and such a warm kind of, I guess it's a warm, solid pie of information to just marinate on, marinate on, and uh, and taste and see. Um, as we wind down, how do we think about this? And maybe just a few practical lessons. Uh, give us a good jumping off point, and then as a follow up question to that, what would be some good resources to go deeper into this? Well, I think it's important to note, Ryan, that that this aspect of theology, whether we're concentrating on heaven itself, or we're talking about this in these interdimensional sort of uh, theophanies and visions and revelations, right? All of these things inform our biblical theology, obviously, our covenant theology, absolutely, and our eschatology, ultimately, because we're, we're talking about the goal of all things being what? Not a renewed earth down here politically, okay? Uh, Not life down here getting better. Not the church down here saying, we have transformed this world into a world that pleases God. 
That, that is just absolutely not the vision that we are being given in Scripture. But instead, from Eden all the way to Christ and his second coming, the goal is heavenly consummation. <laughs> Maybe in a future episode, brother, we will have to tackle um, what Meredith Klein teaches regarding the history of heaven. As the history of heaven reaches its climactic point, right? Even as the history of earth comes to its consummate point. And so as we understand all of this, we're looking at the maturity of the kingdom of God. We're looking at the development of God's kingdom and coming to its total consummate form so that nothing less than the revelation of heaven, the descent of heaven, and the transformation of the present heaven and earth as it is heavenized by the upper register, the higher realm, the glory dimension, as that descends, heavenizes the present heavens, heavens and earth. Then we reach that, um, then we reach that eschatological climax. Uh, and, and, and the revelation of the work of Jesus Christ is finally consummated and revealed and the glory of God is revealed in the kingdom of God, in a glorified church, in a perfected humanity. And, and what, what ends up happening is that Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where God commands his people at a typological level. This is so important. At a typological level, you shall be a kingdom of priests. Right? Israel is to mirror this. They are to try to live this out. But then as we reach the antitype, as we reach the fullness of this, what does Revelation 5 verses 9 through 11 say? Revelation chapter 5, beginning of verse 9, begins to tell us that we are a kingdom of priests. And so we see that kingdom ideal come to consummation in a glorified church. And so what was the purpose of the earthly theocracy? that it would be a foreshadowing, a typology of the ultimate kingdom of God, which only comes to its fullness, its fruition uh, in the consummation. And so it's so remarkable. So maybe if you don't mind, Ryan, I can ask an additional question. Please. Where are we? Yeah. Where are we right now? We are no longer at the stage of typological eschatology. Okay. We're no longer in a stage where the church is typifying something, right? We have now reached the stage in redemptive history where it is more appropriate to talk about semi-realized eschatology. See? So we've moved out of the realm of typology into the realm of semi-realized eschatology, and that semi-realized eschatology awaits only consummate eschatology. That's it. And so that becomes very, very important for you to understand how to interpret biblical prophecy, how to interpret the purpose of the theocracy, how to uh, uh, interpret uh, uh, your covenant theology and things like that. So um, when you think about all of this theology, it really helps us to read our Bible backwards. When you look at what Revelation is talking about, Revelation 21, 22, now we can go back and really truly interpret protology in a mature way um, and really understand all that was symbolized by the garden situation by protology. Uh, honestly, Ryan and everybody listening, the entire program of God is in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and nothing less. The entire eschatological superstructure of the Bible is right there. And so there's so much more, obviously, that, um, that we can say about, about all of that. But I think you also asked me about different resources uh, and stuff. Um, but, you know, obviously, I would tell people to get GK, the works of G.K. Beale, everything that you can get by G.K. Beale. Benjamin Glad is also doing really great stuff. And, uh, and the little book by Lane Tipton, Foundations of Covenant Theology, I think is probably the best book that has appeared 
in recent years that kind of ties all this together very basic and very simply. Um, whereas others who are writing more prolifically, um, can be very complicated. Like Meredith Klein to me, um, is absolutely fascinating, rich. I love, it. I can spend all day reading Meredith Klein, but for most people who are just get kind of getting you know, experience in this area of biblical theology, covenant theology, and eschatology. Uh, 20 years ago, I wish I had Lane Tipton's book, Foundations of Covenant Theology. <laughs> that, that, that would have served as a wonderful cheat sheet of cliff notes <laughs> to very, very complicated theology in Voss, in Klein, in Beale, and others. So, uh, hoping that, uh, hoping that that will be useful for folks. Absolutely. And you know, there's nothing like a good old fashioned rereading and reading again of Genesis one through three, as, uh, as you said, um, that's a great place to be. Keep, keep going there. Well, Ramos, any final closing statements that you think are important as we round off this episode? Be leery of sub eschatological theologies. Anything that falls short of going or basically abiding by the same program that Adam was in, right? A time of this world, this age, probation to one step into a new, another world, into the, the higher glory dimension of heaven. Because the same, if you would, two ages are, are what, uh, are what is operating in Christ. Um, there are no th- three ages, period. And that to me is so helpful eschatologically. Obviously it informs your covenant theology as well, you know, as well. But as long as we understand that we are in the same exact two-step program as Adam was in, in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. If we lose that symmetry, we are, our eschatology and theology slowly begins to unravel. Good to note. Good to note indeed. Now, as always, we have plans for our next episode, but barring any world breaking news, we will continue as such with another deep and rich episode on the next episode. So, uh, Ramos, thanks for thanks for diving into this. This is a heavy topic, and I look forward to to those who are in our local congregation. I'm sure there's going to be additional questions from this, so maybe it'll be good for uh, a good follow up session in future episodes. But with that said, we're signing off. Have a blessed week. <laughs> <laughs>